Hey, good day to you. I'm Carl Falk. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. Welcome. Glad to have you aboard. Hope you had a good 4th of July celebration. It was nice that uh, our country celebrated a birthday with a lot of fireworks and, you know, the typical crap that it seems to be going on nowadays continued on over the holiday weekend. But hopefully you got out and got to enjoy time with your family and friends. I know I did. It was quite lovely, I must say. A lot of stuff like simmering on the back burner. This isn't now a great time for sports. You get into the middle of the baseball season, the all-star break coming up after this weekend. Uh, by the way, my least favorite time of the sports year. I'll get into that. Big ruling in college sports that I'm going to talk about, how it's already impacting college sports. NBA playoffs, the finals get set to go tonight. We'll talk about that. The Canadians stave off elimination in overtime last night. But I want to talk about something else in regards to the Stanley Cup final and what that might mean for a certain city. And the Yankees, well, is it time to uh, call it? You know, and when you watch the hospital shows and the patient isn't going to make it, time of death, might be time to call it for the New York Yankees 2021. We'll talk about all that. But first I want to talk about coverage of sports and what is a sport and what we consume for sports. If you're a media outlet, whether you do a podcast like I'm doing now, whether you're ESPN or CBS or whoever, you're always looking for content. And content can be very interesting. It can be mundane. It can be expensive or it can be cheap. And what what bothers me a lot is what some people look at as content and is great content. And, and whether you're into poker or not, it, it's not content for a sports channel, entertainment and sports network, programming network. That's ESPN. Yet poker is a regular player on ESPN. Cornhole has been on ESPN lately. Don't get me wrong. We're at a picnic drinking beers. Cornhole. Yeah, I'm in. It's a great, great time. Can Jam. I've seen that on ESPN. Again, if we're at the beach, Can Jam's a great idea. I don't want to watch it. Frisbee golf. I know a lot of people who really enjoy it. Is it watchable? Not really. But yet, it passes for content. But the ultimate... No, not the dog show. I'm okay with the dog show. It shouldn't be on ESPN, but I like watching the dogs. The ultimate joke of all this is what has gone on with the 4th of July hot dog eating contest and what it represents, A, what it's done to Joey Chestnut. I actually heard him referred to as an athlete the other day. Athlete, Joey Chestnut. Look, Joey Chestnut is a guy who can do something I could never do. And athletes that I watch could do a lot of things I could never do. But I would never try to eat 76 hot dogs in 10 minutes. I wouldn't want to eat 76 hot dogs in a year. It's unbelievable to me that people want to watch this. And thousands and thousands of people are going to watch this every year. They flock to Coney Island to see this. Joey Chestnut's become a big-time celebrity because... He could do something that's disgusting. 
Did you know this year they actually had a lemonade chug contest? A man by the name of Eric Badlands Booker. You know, that's that's the other thing about this competitive eating. These guys got nicknames like prize fighters. You know, Joey Chestnut and Badlands Booker. Well, Badlands, he chugged a gallon of lemonade in 40 seconds. Think about that. I mean, 40 seconds to chug a gallon of lemonade. What would I have to pay you to chug a gallon of lemonade? And regardless of how long it would be, but 40 seconds. This is just gluttony, and it's disgusting, and I hate it. And yet ESPN, it is a huge, huge moneymaker for them. It's crazy to me. I'll never understand it. It's something I'll never condone. I'll never watch. But yet people do. And while most things that people watch that I don't, I kind of accept that, okay, that's their thing. It's not my thing. NASCAR's a good example of that. Soccer is a good example of that, that UEFA Cup is going on right now, and I know people are loving it, and I just don't get it. You see guys flopping all the time and staying down like they got shot, and then miraculously after the yellow card comes out, they're fine and continue on playing. I just don't enjoy it, but I know people do. And I guess I can understand why people do. Soccer is a great game. NASCAR is an exciting sport. I understand that. Competitive eating, I'll never understand it. I'll never condone it, and I'll never watch it. But it passes for content. Well, fortunately, none of the names I'm about to mention have ever announced, at least to my knowledge, the competitive eating contests. We have lost Marv Albert now as an NBA announcer. Marv Albert... I remember him back, and this is me going way back in time, announcing college basketball on Saturday afternoons with Bucky Waters. I first guy I remember him talking about with that voice and the yes and accounts was Phil Sellers of Rutgers. Look that one up on Wikipedia because I'm sure none of you have heard that name, and if you ever have, in about 30 or 40 years. But Marv Albert was an an amazing guy when it came to announcing basketball. He went through a scandal that we've seemingly forgot about, but he was great. And he is the voice of the NBA. He, in my opinion, is the voice that resonates with the NBA. Brett Musburger may have been before that, but... Recently, and I think through this second growth of the NBA, at least in the media, had been Marv Albert. Marv Albert's retired. Brett Musburger's retired. Dick Enberg has retired. Bob Costas, we don't hear much from. College football, to me, will always be Keith Jackson. That's the voice I hear when I think of college football. Vern Lundquist has gone away. He was another great one. Pat Summerall in the NFL has gone away, and, and hockey fans, and I think this guy might be the greatest of them all, is Doc Emmerich, because of how difficult hockey is to announce. Terrible, terribly quick, fast-paced game. Names aren't easy, because you've got so many European players. Doc Emmerich was a pro's pro. Now, he's still got a couple... Of the all-time greats in announcing hanging on, Vince Scully, obviously, 
is still around a little bit. Al Michaels is still doing Sunday night football. But you think of what we've lost. You think of what we have. And you think of the way sports are consumed now and the voices we hear. Yeah, Jim Nance is still very, very active and viable, as is Mike Tirico, and I think Tirico is the best of them all right now. You watch how smooth that guy is, whether he's hosting a studio show or whether he's calling play-by-play. He is just unbelievably great. Mike Breen, very good in the NBA. We'll hear him, obviously, call the finals. And a guy that people just hate, and I don't get it, it's Joe Buck. People hate Joe Buck, and I don't understand why. Yeah, I think he's very good. I think he's extremely talented. But people absolutely hate him. But those voices aren't the voices of sports for the younger generation. The ratings have been okay recently because people like me watch the games. Young people watch YouTube and then wake up in the morning and hear guys like Stephen A. Smith and Skip Bayless yell at each other. And those two don't yell at each other anymore. They're on opposing networks. But if that's the voice that our young people are listening to for sports, either one of those two idiots, then we're screwed. And sports are screwed. Because these guys are guys who don't do research unless it fits their narrative. And, you know, a guy like Skip Bayless will continue to talk about how LeBron James isn't Michael Jordan. That's his narrative. Stephen A. is all over the place. He's still trying to figure out who plays tight end for the San Diego Chargers a couple years ago. Remember that when Hunter Henry was out for the year and they asked Stephen A. who was going to be a key player in a playoff game and he mentioned Hunter Henry? You'd think at $10 million a year you might do a little research. I don't know. I would. I would hope somebody would, but it's it's just embarrassing to me, to the profession of, of sports broadcasting, that these voices are the voices that are going to be heard by our next generation. No wonder kids don't watch sports. They listen to that crap. Why would you want to? But it's it's unfortunate that we don't have the pipeline in place to replace the greats have gone away. You know, sports are all about the next generation. Look at baseball. The young generation, guys like Acuna Jr. and uh, Fernando Tatis Jr., Vlad Jr., all these guys are the next generation. They're going to replace the older guys. It's That's what sports does. Sports broadcasting? I don't see that younger generation coming through right now, at least not when it comes to calling games. The younger generation may be doing things with studio shows and working that way, but I just don't see the next generation being ready to call games. And frankly, to me, the games are the best part of sports, not the debate after or before the games. And, and and maybe that's me showing my age and showing my interest. I'm going to talk about the NBA Finals for a little bit today, what I think is going to happen. But I'm not going to spend hours on that 
and then a few minutes watching the game. I, I want to watch the game and see what happens. That's the interesting part of sports to me. Unfortunately, I think that's a generational thing, and, and the generation now is much more about discussing previous to the game, after the game, and debating things, but not really consuming the game. So it's strange where sports media is at this point. Big ruling a couple weeks ago in college athletics, and, and it's already having ripple effects. The Supreme Court allowing college athletes, the Supreme Court, who don't agree on anything, voted 9 to nothing. So every one of the Supreme Court justices agreed that the NCAA was violating antitrust laws with their business practices of not allowing student athletes to make money off their name, image, or likeness. So with that ruling, the NCAA has now opened up things so that student athletes can make money off their name, image, and likeness. And already some college athletes are going to be very wealthy because of this. Barstool Sports, which is a incredibly powerful media outlet, which sounds strange because the way it started as a blog, and now it's one of the more powerful media outlets going, they've been able to do things that the traditional networks haven't been able to do. They're signing athletes and getting them to be correspondents. And because of their power, their ability to pay people, their coverage of sports going forward is going to have an insider view that I I think might be unmatched in media. It's, It's going to be interesting because if you sign a guy, I'll use Spencer Rattler, who is a quarterback who I don't really like, but he plays for the University of Oklahoma. He's very good and going to be, a a top draft pick, in my opinion. If you have him on your payroll and you have a weekly podcast like I'm doing now, how much information can Spencer Rattler put out there before the University of Oklahoma coaching staff looks at him and says, dude, what are you doing? You're giving away our game plan. You're talking about injuries. You're talking about stuff that nobody wants to talk about. Well, it's my job, and they're paying me to do it, so I'm doing it. I I don't think this is going to be as smoothly transitioned as many other people think. Now, do I think players should be allowed to make money off their name, image, and likeness? Absolutely. I I definitely think they do. Buddy Beheim, for example, of Syracuse University basketball player, has a line of clothing out now. Buddy Bucket's clothing. JG3, Joe Girard III, has a line of clothing out. You now can wear clothing that they're going to get a percentage of the proceeds. They've been contacted and paid out by a third party. Now, here's what I don't know. If there's a Syracuse University logo on that clothing, does the university get a portion of that of those proceeds? Do they have to does the clothing company have to have a licensing agreement with the university to put the Syracuse logo on there, or is it just because they have an agreement with Joe Girard and Buddy Beheim that they can do this and, and make money? I don't know the answer to that question. I think there are a lot of questions that we don't have answers to that we're going to find out as we navigate through this. 
Buddy Bayheim's also on Cameo. Cameo's a, a, a platform where you can pay a celebrity, and I'll use that in the loosest sense of the term, an amount of money to wish you a happy birthday, tell you to go screw yourself. Whatever you want that person to say, they'll generally say for a fee. Buddy Bayheim charges $65. So for $65, you can have Buddy Bayheim say happy birthday to your kid. That's crazy to me. It really is crazy that somebody would pay $65 to have Buddy Bayheim wish their kid a happy birthday. It's a very strange thing, but that's the world we're living in. And I think as we go on, while I agree with the fact that players should be allowed to make this money, I think what you're going to see is, and it's already happened, it's happened for years, but now it's out in the open, where if you come to Syracuse to play basketball, you're going to get X. If you go to Alabama to play football, you're going to get X. You're going to get an opportunity to make a lot of money. You might actually have less money being transferred in an underhanded way from the coaching staff and boosters. Now it can be done out in the open. Those boosters generally have businesses. And guess what? You could pay a quarterback like Spencer Rattler an amount of money to represent one of those businesses. That's how boosters will help recruiting. That's how this name image likeness thing is going to be out in the open. So the question I have is, does the backroom money stop now and become wide open and everyone knows about it money? Or is it just another source of income that you're going to have to figure out a way to deal with if you're the NCAA? And anyone who thinks this hasn't been going on for a long time hasn't been paying attention. A guy like Zion Williamson, who reportedly, according to FBI transcripts, was offered money to go to Kansas. Zion ended up going to Duke. If Zion turned down money to go to Kansas, do you think he went to Duke without the promise of money going to Duke? And everyone looks at Duke and Coach K as the purest form of basketball, and that's college basketball at its best because they do it the right way. Everyone who's thinking their school does it the right way, their school's probably better at hiding it than other schools who get caught, Duke being one of those. And Zion has been one of the names that Duke has been investigated about. And frankly, Duke has not been charged with any NCAA violations in regards to what Zion may have gotten there. And frankly, now, anyone who might have gotten improper benefits prior to this, kind of like the weed dealers being let out of jail after it became legalized, why would you continue to investigate a college that may have violated NCAA rules by paying its players when now, basically, it's the same thing that can happen legally? I'm not sure where this goes. I think it's long overdue, and I think the NCAA, because of their stubbornness, have created a bigger mess for themselves than they should have. I think 
if the NCAA was more proactive and worked with the athletes instead of just saying, no, we don't have to give them anything and we control this thing, I think they could have regulated this in a way that may have tampered down some of the income streams that are about to come in. I think there's going to be things that happen and athletes giving getting money for representing things that the NCAA is not going to be happy about. Take a UConn basketball player. He does a commercial for Foxwoods Casino. How's the NCAA going to like that? It's a perfectly legal thing. Syracuse, Turning Stone, Del Lago. They have a sports book in there. They, you can't bet on New York State sports. There should be no conflict of interest. But if they want to hire Joe Girard and Buddy Behan to be their spokesman at Del Lago, how's the NCAA going to like that? All of a sudden, gambling's part of it. What if, take a 21-year-old student-athlete, He's doing commercials for a local brewery in town, you know, a microbrewery of sorts. How's that going to go over with the NCAA? I think there's a lot of things that could and may happen that the NCAA is not going to be very happy with. But again, they created this situation by thinking that the Supreme Court was going to side with them. Oh, by the way, when it's 9-0... The NCAA showed how bad of a read they had on the situation by not taking care of it. So that's going to be a big part of sports going forward in the at the college levels. And I think we're going to see more and more things and players getting opportunities to make money. It won't change anything because the players were already getting money. Where I think it helps and, and it'll be interesting to see is it's not just going to be the quarterback for Oklahoma, it's not just going to be Buddy Beheim. I think there's going to be a lot of secondary sports where people benefits. Already, there's a pair of twins who are very good-looking girls who play, I think, volleyball at a school that Barstool has, has signed. Not because anybody knows them, not because they're notable for sports, because of the way they look. So... You're going to see a lot of strange things happen with this name, image, and likeness thing. And is it good for sports? It's good for the people getting paid. I'm not sure it's good for the universities. The NCAA could have handled it better and made it so it's good for the universities. But we'll see. I I think there's going to be interesting conflicts that come out of this. Keep an eye on that. As mentioned, the NBA Finals get going tonight. I'm hoping the Phoenix Suns win this because before they the playoffs started, I picked the Suns to win the NBA championship, and I'd like to be right on that because that would be cool. But with Giannis, and the, the Greek freak, being out, with that injury, it's going to change the tenor of the series. If Giannis is in there, I don't know who Phoenix tries to match up with him because they don't have a guy that, in my opinion, can do it. Jay Crowder, I don't think, can guard Giannis. But the reality is I don't think that's going to be a factor. Now, look, he's doubtful for game one. 
He's making progress. Everyone's relieved that there's no structural damage. I listened to a doctor on Twitter who was a former team surgeon for the San Diego Chargers named Dr. Chow, who looks at video of injuries and gives a hypothesis diagnosis based on what he sees on video. And immediately when he saw Giannis's injury, he thought no structural damage, likely some other damage to the knee, which will keep him out for the rest of the playoffs, but he should be good to go by training camp next year. That's kind of what's transpired. And everyone sees Giannis standing and walking and thinking, look, he can stand and walk. I can stand and walk. I've got bad knees. I can't run and jump. So I think there's a big difference between standing and walking and running and jumping, especially when you're playing an NBA game. I don't think Giannis plays in the finals. I think he's out. So what does that mean for the finals? Well, you look at the players remaining and the impact players remaining for the Bucks. Chris Middleton's been great. In spots, he's been spectacular. Overall, he's been great. He's going to have to carry the load. He's never been asked to carry the load as a one. Usually, he's been a 1A to Giannis as one. Is he able to do it? His ability to shoot, his ability to get to the rim and finish. I think he's a very good player, and I think he's very capable of leading his team to a championship. Drew Holiday, I think, benefits a little bit from Giannis's injury, and that sounds weird. But Holiday now gets more looks. Getting him more looks, I think, A, does it does two things. A, it gets him more in the rhythm of the offense, and I think that benefits him, and he feels more freedom, so he'll shoot more, be more productive. B, Generally, when you're scoring a little bit more, the other parts of your game improve as well. His passing, I think, will be better. And and most importantly, his defense. And I think it's going to be interesting to see who Holiday covers. And we'll see it early on. Do they decide to go with, with him against Chris Paul? Or do they try to put him on Devin Booker? And Booker's got a little bit of a height advantage. But Holiday's a excellent defender. That's going to be a key part to the series. Brooke Lopez has been playing excellent basketball. I think the best basketball of his career. I think he is going to be a factor in this series too. Can he, A, play well enough against DeAndre Ayton, especially in the pick and roll, to not let Ayton get those easy looks. Ayton's shooting about 70% for the playoffs. And B, can Lopez make Aiton work defensively and maybe pick up some fouls on him to get him out of the game? That's going to be a key matchup. Now, I mentioned the three main players for the Suns, Chris Paul, DeAndre Ayton, and Devin Booker. Booker, I think, is just a great scorer. I, I, I really think his game lends itself to what we're about to see in these finals. And that's just a go-to, clear-out, make-something-happen I think he should be very ready to go. Chris Paul, he's waited a long time to get here. He's finally healthy in these finals. Whether or not he stays that way remains to be seen. But Chris Paul, I think, should have been the MVP for the season. I said that 
during the season. I think he's the most important player on anyone's team. But I don't think he's the most important player in the finals. I think that's Devin Booker. And I think this is Devin Booker's chance to take that next step to become a superstar. And, and he's already a star. Become a superstar. Become one of those guys that we look at as a top five player in the league. You lead your team to a championship, he can do that. And then there's DeAndre Ayton, the former number one overall pick, who go back to the discussion about paying college athletes, may or may not have made a lot of money playing for one year at Arizona. Ayton has become a very important part of the Suns, both offensively and defensively, routinely getting close to 20 points and over 12 rebounds. Ayton does a great job in the pick and roll with Chris Paul and finishing at the rim. And I think, again, look at what's been going on leading up to this point. When you need a bucket, when you absolutely have a have to have a bucket, and whether Booker is off or Booker's on the bench, running that two-man game with Chris Paul and DeAndre Ayton, it's going to be key in this series. What does it come down to? <laughs> to me, it comes down to not anything I just said. I talked for five minutes about it, and none of that is the most important part. It's the other guys. In a close matchup, the other guys always, in my opinion, determine who wins the championship. For Milwaukee, the key other guys, P.J. Tucker. I mentioned the defense earlier of Drew Holiday. P.J. Tucker is an excellent defender. I would expect to see him spend a lot of time on Devin Booker. And if he does, I think that's a great matchup for the Bucks because then Holiday slides over and takes Chris Paul or Cameron Payne, whoever happens to be in the game at that time. I think that's important. Bobby Portis has been a great off-the-bench guy for the Bucks. Toughness, just enough at, uh, offensive ability, plays very good D. Can he have a couple big games to help steal a few wins? Pat Connaughton, who I think is a player who has ability. I don't think... He's done a whole lot this playoffs, but again, he's got the ability, so can he get hot and steal a game? For the Suns, I mentioned Cameron Payne. Key because Chris Paul, at 36 years old, needs time on the bench. Cameron Payne changes the tempo of the offense. He likes to push it and run, whereas Chris Paul is more likely to walk it up, so he's a key player. Cam Johnson, very good young player, can knock down threes, and get things done that way, I think he's key. I mentioned Jay Crowder defensively. I think Crowder, again, being able to hit the open three, that's going to be a big part of it. And Mikel Bridges, I think, has a chance to be somebody that we really learn a lot about in these finals. So which team's other guys are going to play better and allow them to win, in my opinion, It's going to be the Phoenix Suns in six with Devin Booker being the MVP. So we'll see how that goes from here. Should be a good series. And even without Giannis, I think there's a lot of talent there that will lend itself to these finals, and it'll be an interesting watch as we go forward. Major League Baseball, I mentioned we're nearing the All-Star break, but before we get there, 
we got to dissect a team that had a rough weekend. And the rough weekend was in large part because of certain players not getting it done and the team that they were playing. And, of course, the team that had the rough weekend that I'm referring to is the New York Yankees. They were beaten by the New York Mets. If you see my shirt, if you're watching on YouTube, you know where my allegiances lie. But the Yankees losing two out of three to the Mets wasn't really the story. The story was they were struggling coming in. The story was that Garrett Cole, their $350 million pitcher, all right, 330 whatever, he has not been the same since this ban on sticky stuff went into effect. I mean, Garrett Cole had a terrible answer when they asked him if he used spider tech. From there, it's been downhill. And against the Mets in a seven-inning game where I'm looking at the Yankees and expecting Cole to go all seven to save the bullpen for the nightcap when you've got Nestor Cortez starting. I'm thinking, advantage Yankees. But for him to not be able to get out of the fourth inning, this is the second bad start in a row. And since the spider tack ban has gone in, Garrett Cole just hasn't been the same guy. You can look at the analytics. You can look at the spin rates to see that it's not the same. Or you can look at the results and see that that's not the same. They've got this guy for eight more years. And while Garrett Cole is still a very good pitcher, and I, I have confidence he's going to figure out a way to be effective without it, right now he's not the same guy. And I think the longer this goes on, the bigger the, bigger the chance that his confidence is hurt, his lack of trusting of his stuff becomes a factor. And I think it, I saw some of that on Sunday when he chose to nibble a few times and issue walk. Garrett Cole, when he was going good early this year, didn't walk anybody for like 55 innings. Now he's nibbling instead of challenging guys. And I think part of that is he doesn't feel as confident in his stuff as he did before. And again, this is a great pitcher. Even without the spider tack, he's just got to figure out how to become a great pitcher again without it. I, I do think Garrett Cole will be all right. But it's certainly a concern, especially with that contract situation. And speaking of confidence and speaking of sticky stuff, maybe the Yankees' bigger problem has been their closer, Aroldis Chapman. Chapman was great early on this year, almost untouchable. But over the last month has been a, can, a gasoline can. He has been awful, and he gave up a game-tying home run to Pete Alonso on a curveball when he was blowing Alonso and everyone else away with his fastball. Uh, it was a bad pitch, pitch selection, bad location. But again, I think this goes to the big picture of a guy who may not trust his stuff as much. And if you look at Chapman, and everyone points to Garrett Cole when you talk about the sticky stuff, and rightfully so, but... Chapman's struggles started at the same time the ban came into effect. So I think it's a fair question to wonder, was he a benefactor of spider tack or something along those lines as well? The bigger question for the Yankees is what to do with the 2020 season. As we 
sit here today. They're one game over 500. They're 42 and 41, which means they're just past the halfway point. The trade deadline this year, and remember, it's a hard deadline. It's not the first of two trade deadlines. It's a trade deadline. It's July 30th. The Yankees have to figure out between now, today, July 6th, and July 30th, we've got 24 days to figure this out, whether or not they're buyers or sellers. And you might think, why would the Yankees ever sell? That's stupid. They're the Yankees. Well, think about this. As we talk right now, the Yankees are in fourth place in the American League East. They're 10 and a half games out of first place in the American League East. They're also five and a half games out of the wild card. Now, the ten and a half's a lot. The five and a half's a pretty big number. It's not insurmountable. But I want to point something out. From now till July 30th, here's the Yankees' schedule. Three starting tonight at Seattle. Seattle's five games over 500, having a nice rebound year. Then three at Houston. Houston's quietly going about their business, maybe cheating, maybe not. But playing very good baseball. Then there's the All-Star break. Then they have four at the stadium against Boston, two against Philly. We know they haven't beaten Boston all year. Boston, very good. Philly, underachieving in my opinion, but in a two-game series, could easily win one of two. Four at Boston after that, and then three at Tampa. So the 19 games that the Yankees have left between now and the trade deadline, they have one team that's two games under five hundred. That's the, the Phillies, and that's for two games. The other 17 games are against teams that are well over five hundred, with the exception of Seattle's only five games over five hundred. Can the Yankees win 12 of those 19 games? If they go 12-7... and seven, they are then going to be six games over 500 at the trade deadline. Is that enough to convince you to stay in the race? It, it, think about this because their top of their farm system is pretty barren. They got to back into things a couple of years ago by selling Araldis Chapman, ironically enough. They brought in Glaber Torres, who was a key piece for a couple of years and now appears not to be, and then re signed Torres. So if you're thinking, well, maybe they should sell, the question then becomes, who do you sell? You have guys like Glaber Torres, Clint Frazier, Miguel Andujar. Those guys you could sell, but I'm not sure what the return's going to be. I definitely would look to move players and create an opening at shortstop to set up either bringing in a shortstop that you plan to pay or signing a shortstop in the offseason. I think that's step number one to revisiting the offense. Luke Voigt might have some value. He's having a terrible year last year in the shortened season. He did lead the major leagues in home runs, but I'm not sure what value he has. He could be a throw-in piece if you're looking to get a good player. But the name that a lot of people are starting to say, and I've heard people say this, and I'm not sure how Yankee fans would feel about it, but it's Aaron Judge. And before you turn off the podcast, hear me out on this. Aaron Judge 
is having a very good year, and he's staying healthy this year for the first time since his rookie year. Of course, that could change in an instant. Hopefully it doesn't because he's one of those players that people watch baseball to see play. He made the all-star team, and rightfully so, having, again, a very nice year. But Aaron Judge is going to be a free agent after next season, the 2022 season. The question for the Yankees is this. Are you willing to give Aaron Judge, who will be 30 at the point of his free agency and 31 shortly after his first season of his new contract starts, are you willing to pay him the 10-year, $340 million deal that he'll probably want? He's going to get that kind of money. He's going to get that kind of money because that's the money that players who put up numbers like Aaron Judge gets. But if you're the Yankees and all of a sudden you're fiscally responsible, and I know Yankee fans don't want to hear about fiscal responsibility when it comes to playing, paying players, do you want to spend that money on Aaron Judge? And you, your heart might say yes, but if you look deeper into it, when... Judge might bring the biggest return of anybody. Maybe it's time to move on. You haven't won with Judge. You haven't won because of Judge. Maybe use him to restock the system so you can get back to winning. And that's what the Yankees are all about. They're not about the regular season. They're about winning championships. It's been a long time now since they've won a championship. They've got to figure out a way back there. And I think Aaron Judge is the best way back there. Other people that they could think about moving and to much less controversial, I would say, and I don't know that moving Judge would be controversial. It might be surprising to some Yankee fans to think about it that way, but it's also probably a smarter business move. Gary Sanchez, who's had a rebirth recently, I think you absolutely should move him if you're Brian Cashman. I'm not sure long-term what Gary Sanchez is going to do. The guy's got ability, can hit home runs, he can throw. He's much more of a retriever than he is a catcher. He's never going to be a good catcher. He's just simply interested enough to put the work in to to get that job done. But he can also be a significant upgrade for a lot of teams at that position. So with that in mind, he's got value. And if I'm Brian Cashman, I capitalize on that value before he goes back into a funk like he did over the last couple years. The bullpen arms are always a big part of the trade deadline in Major League Baseball. The Yankees, in my opinion, have a piece that they could get a ton for. I think Chad Green could bring back two very good prospects. And I think that's a piece that the Yankees should look to move. Another bullpen arm that could bring back something is Darren O'Day. He's 38 years old, signed through next year, never going to be a lights-out reliever like Green is, but at the same time, if your team that's going to the postseason, lengthening your bullpen with an arm like Darren O'Day, it's not a bad move. There's people out there. So, The next month is going to be very interesting for the Yankees. If you're a Yankee fan, pay very close attention to what they do over the next couple weeks. 
and, and both on the field and off the field. Because on the field, I think it's going to be tough for them to be to get themselves back in the race. And if you're not back in the race close to July 30th, the better move business-wise is to sell. And I really think as long as the Yankees are intent on staying below the luxury tax threshold, they should absolutely become sellers, not buyers. Now, if they go on a run and win 15 out of 19, that all changes. But I don't think anybody really sees that happening. We're a week away from the All-Star Game. That's next Tuesday. All-Star Game, to me, has lost its luster, and everything about it isn't very interesting to me. I'm not a big fan of the Home Run Derby. I'll tune in, but you know they, they, they have these guys hitting titleists about 500 feet. They, they make special balls that are wound tighter, so they go further. You hear Chris Berman saying, back, 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 a thousand times in the night. It just gets tiring. And and frankly, I don't like the format of it. I think it's too long. I I know they've changed it up. I I just think it's too long. You should have, like, three-round games, you know, two guys against each other, where each inning, if you will, you get three outs. So, in other words, Vlad Guerrero Jr. goes up, and if he, he, he hits as many home runs as he can in the first Time, when he doesn't hit one three times, the other guy gets to bat. And same thing. And do it for three times. So you have a total of three inning game. I think that'd be a way better format than what it is now. It's too long. Guys get tired. You'll have somebody in the early rounds hit a bunch of home runs. And by the championship round, they're gassed. So the championship round is generally not much of anything. So that's going to be a lot of fun for some people, not so much for me. There's also the celebrity, I use air quotes on that one, all-star game or softball game. Celebrity softball game always has a bunch of ESPN people and celebrities who I have to continually say, who's that? What's that person do? I don't know. You would think celebrity, most people would know who they are, but yeah, not so much. Celebrity all-star game. But the one thing I do want to see this year in, in the All-Star Game is something we've never seen before. It, it's a lot with this guy. Shohei Otani, again, doing something nobody has ever done. Otani is going to be in the All-Star Game both as a pitcher and as a position player. He made the All-Star team both ways, which is remarkable if you think about it. Now, should he have been selected as a starting pitcher? Probably not. I think it was a little bit of hype. I mean, he's got a 3-6 ERA. He's got 83 strikeouts in 60 innings. He's been very good. I'm not sure he's all-star level as a pitcher, certainly as a hitter, with his 31 major league leading home runs, 67 RBIs, and a 1.058 OPS. He's been great. But just to be able to see a guy do that at that level, And in the All-Star game, go from, say, right field to pitcher, I think that'll be fantastic. Sign me up for the the Otani show in the All-Star game. You're going to have a lot of guys who don't end up going. Guys like Jacob deGrom, he's likely to pitch Sunday, which will take him out of it. And frankly, I'm okay with that. As, As a Met fan, I want 
DeGrom to pitch for the Mets, not for the National League All-Stars. The uniforms are going to be horrible. There's going to be a lot of discussion about the decision to move the All-Star game from Atlanta this year to Colorado because of the voting law that the state of Georgia put in. So we're going to have a political side to the All-Star game the entire weekend. There's going to be a lot of discussion about that. So there's a lot of things I don't really care about with the All-Star game. I'll just be looking forward to the following Friday night when Major League Baseball gets back to playing. I always hate the All-Star break because baseball's every night, and that's the beauty of baseball if you're a fan. It's every night. And with the All-Star break, it's simply not. One last baseball note, and I don't know. Two people know what happened between Trevor Bauer and the woman who has accused him of assault. Bauer's attorneys have leaked or put out, I shouldn't say leaked, put out messages between the woman and Bauer, which indicate that they were both down for rough consensual sex. Whatever happened between the two of them, only they know. But Trevor Bauer's being investigated by the police for an assault on this woman. And Major League Baseball finally had to step in because the Dodgers weren't going to step in. Bauer was scheduled to pitch Sunday. And all of this stuff came out, and the Dodgers were still going to let him pitch. Baseball stepped in, put him on an exempt list where he'll continue to get money, but he isn't allowed to play until the resolution of this. And it's going to be a while. The investigation with the police is going to take a while. Major League Baseball wants to talk to both Bauer and the woman involved. Bauer can't talk to Major League Baseball about this because anything he says can and will be used against him in a court of law. So how can he talk to Major League Baseball about this and possibly make his situation worse with the courts until the he's either charged or not charged? I don't think baseball has a leg up. And frankly, this is a problem for the Dodgers. They gave this guy a three-year, $120 million contract before this season. He's pitching very well up until then. But now you've got to figure out a way to deal with this and, and figure out a way to have Trevor Bauer still be part of your team. But everywhere you go now, this is going to be part of the story with Trevor Bauer. And Bauer, for as, as good as he is on the field, has always been spectacle of sorts off the field and whether it's Twitter whether it's exchanges with fans whatever showing people up there's always a story to Bauer it's just his personality and hey look the Mets wanted to sign him badly a lot of teams wanted to sign him nobody cared about this guy's behavior until now when it becomes problematic and again with the Dodgers willing to send him out there it's no different than the Angels not firing Mickey Calloway as their pitching coach when everything came out that this guy was doing, sending pictures to reporters who weren't interested in his pictures that he was sending them. It's just amazing that baseball seems so far behind on this stuff, and yet they've got very strict penalties in place for guys who violate these 
rules. It, it, it's just they're not proactive about it. They're reactive. And this is another case where Major League Baseball is being very reactive. Now, the other part of this is the suspension. I think Araldis Chapman got 30 games for firing gunshots into a refrigerator in the garage, which who hasn't done that in a fit of rage? I mean, call that Tuesday. But I think there's also been up to 60 and 80 game suspensions for guys who have violated the domestic violence policy. And if Bauer is found to have done so, that very likely puts him out for the rest of this season. And the Dodgers are one of the best teams in baseball, obviously. One of three teams having great years in the American League West. I'm not sure where they go from here. And here's the other part of it. What do the Dodgers do with Trevor Bauer going forward if he gets 80 games? He's out for the year, say. Would they bring him back for the playoffs? Because Robert Osuna, the closer for the Astros, that was his situation. He was ineligible for the playoffs because of that. But the next year, Astros brought him right in, and he's been a closer there without controversy since. But everywhere he goes on the road, what's everyone talking about? And the Dodgers, they're a legacy franchise that I I wouldn't expect them to put up with a whole lot of stuff like this. So where does it go from here for Trevor Bauer and the Dodgers? Something certainly to keep an eye on. And and I think this is going to be one of the more complicated situations, again, because of those text messages that suggest a willingness on the female involved. And I think it's something Major League Baseball is going to have to do something about. And I, I think there's a s- suspension coming. I think there should be. But again, it's all up to the courts, and this is this is not going to be clear cut. But MLB is supposed to be tough on this. They've said they're going to be very, very strict with the domestic violence policy. Here's your chance to prove it, MLB. We'll see what happens with Trevor Bauer. I mentioned earlier in the show that the Canadians won last night in overtime to keep their hopes of a Stanley Cup alive and keep Canada's hopes of a Stanley Cup alive. One crazy thing about last night's game. So last night's game was played in Montreal. Very few fans in the building. The cutaways from Montreal, the game, to the Lightning Arena in Tampa, which was filled with fans, was really dramatic and really startling. It was was strange to see, frankly. But the Canadians... Get a great goal, a great effort goal in overtime to get the win, stay alive. But I got to ask this question. Has Tampa suddenly become city of champions? I mean, think about this. The Lightning are the defending Stanley Cup champion, likely to be the two-time defending Stanley Cup champion. The Bucks win the Super Bowl. The Rays were in the World Series. Did anyone ever take Tampa sports seriously prior to this? Because I never have. I mean, the Rays have always been the nice little team that could. You know, they get to the playoffs almost every year, and and Kevin Cash is as good a manager as there is in baseball. And say what you will about the way he managed the World Series. It's how he managed a team to get to the World Series. So, yes, it bit him in the ass in the series, but it got him to the series. You look at the the Bucks traditionally – 
they're they're not a good team. But of course, they bring Tom Brady in, and they had pieces in place, and he put them over the top, and they win. They are a the best sports city right now in the country, and the only city I can think that even is close. And we're now three years out of when this city had its moment it was Boston in the 2018 year. The Patriots won the Super Bowl. The Bruins lost the Stanley Cup final there. And the Sox won the World Series. That's pretty strong. The weak team in Boston now is the Celtics, who haven't won a title since the 2007-2008 season, which I was surprised when I read that. I didn't think it was that long ago, but it was. 2007-2008, the last time the Celtics won the World Series. Again, living in a city where you have championship teams, it's got to be amazing. I, I think of around here, and the only championship team we ever had locally in Rochester, and, and it's not one of our teams. The Amherst have won the Calder Cup. The Red Wings have won the Governor's Cup. But I, I'm talking about major sports when – SU won the national championship in 2003, college basketball. That was the one time, in my opinion, we had a team that was a championship team locally. Bill's been to four Super Bowls, obviously, never won one. The Sabres, I think they made the playoffs like 25 years ago. All right, I know it's only been 10. I know it's, I mean, 11. Sorry, I lost count. I know it's only been 11 years, but it seems like a lot longer. And while the Bills, I think, are actually close and could be a Super Bowl contender, I don't know what it'd be like if they actually won. And I was thinking about this when I was writing this stuff down. Boston, they get the duck boats out, they have the parade, and everyone comes together and has a good time. They're used to it. They know what to expect. Tampa now, they know what to expect. They've won the Super Bowl. They've won the Stanley Cup. They've been to the World Series. What would what would it be like in Western New York if the Bills actually won the Super Bowl? I, I really couldn't imagine. And I think there would be signs, if you remember in 94 when the Rangers won the Stanley Cup. I always remember this sign that the fan held held up. Now I can die in peace. You know, because they never thought you'd see it in a lifetime. Red Sox fans in 2004, they never thought they'd see that in their lifetime. And it happened. That's kind of how I feel about the Bills. I honestly never thought I would see them be a Super Bowl champion. And I, I don't think they'll be one. But they could be. And they're one of the top five favorites, in my opinion, this year to win the Super Bowl. Obviously, a lot of factors will go into that. But what would it be like in Buffalo and in Western New York if the Bills actually won the Super Bowl? Just thinking out loud. I think it would be unbelievable, and I can't imagine what that city and what our area would be like if they actually won it. And, you know, go back to the 90s. They were a Steve Ta- as they were a, a field goal away from finding out the answer to that question. 
But because of that, that's all part of it. That's all goes into it now. So I, I hope to find that out in my lifetime, what it's like to have a champion in Western New York or Central New York. And I, I don't, I think the only team close is the Buffalo Bills, and that would be wild to see. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. We'll talk next Tuesday. This is the Falcon Around Podcast. I'm Carl Falk.